This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The investigation into sexting at Canyon City High School has wrapped up. No charges will be filed against any student, even though about 350 photos of, quote, questionable nature were found on students' phones and other devices. This case drew national attention. Fremont County District Attorney Tom Ledoux said there weren't aggravating circumstances that required him to file charges. Such as the involvement of adults, the posting of images to the Internet, coercion or bullying, allegations of unlawful sexual contact, and or retribution or retaliation. He also said the incident can serve as a learning experience. Although the community and children should have already learned a lot as a result of our collective experiences over the last couple of weeks, we believe that an ongoing educational effort is the most appropriate response under these circumstances. And that's exactly what the school district has planned, according to Superintendent George Welsh, who is on the phone with us from Canyon City. Superintendent, welcome to the program. Good morning. So no charges filed, but I understand there were some suspensions. Is that right? Yeah, the way this thing kind of came about is we we, um, received some tips uh, that uh, students were sharing pictures, and uh, after our investigation, um, or in the course of our investigation, um, we we, uh, we uncovered evidence that made us comfortable applying administrative um, consequences to uh, some students who were involved. Um, but we were also pretty quickly put in a situation where we had to stop our investigation because, uh, by law, we were, in essence, uh, in possession of child pornography. And so uh, we turned it over to the police immediately. That's right, because underage sexting right now legally isn't separated from child pornography laws. May I ask what kind of behavior led to suspensions? Um, well, it was uh, certainly sending, receiving, and uh, um, um, forwarding on. Um, um, we we uh, obviously with uh, probably people can put one and two together um, and hear that um, upwards of 300 uh, photos um, were uh, deemed to very likely be from um, 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 high school age students or even a little bit younger um, in this investigation, and, and th- that evidence was what we uncovered uh, um, through our school investigation. And so uh, to the suspensions one more time, would those have been photos shared by students that weren't of themselves? Is is that what you zeroed in on? Well, to the extent to which they were shared was uh, we were only able to pick that up verbally. Um, the evidence that we had is, you know, with 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 students with a high number on uh, devices, uh, certainly they were not of themselves all. Yeah, yeah. Um, going forward, I understand that students could still face legal consequences. Under what circumstances might the DA look back at Canyon City? Well, what what I think um, he arrived at was, uh, as as you played the clip, he was he was looking for aggravating circumstances. He didn't find aggravating circumstances as he defined them uh, at the press conference. Uh, he he's determined that an aggravating circumstance going forward would be if any of the um, pictures that they've received in evidence are found to continue to be being passed around. Um, and very possibly if uh, a- any incident of this, of, of this nature going forward 
occurs. Uh, his assumption is that there were a lot of uh, kids in our community. Well, most kids in our community, and probably most adults, weren't aware of the, the um, severity of the, the, the possible penalties related to the behavior they were engaged in. And so uh, um, he wanted to. Um, he feels like that's uh, um, that's taken care of. And uh, if we can do a good educational effort going forward, we can keep it from happening. And uh, unless the law changes at some level, uh, he will have to prosecute based on the, the current statutes. Let's talk about the law. Uh, I understand that you are among those who'd like to see a legal distinction between underage sexting and child pornography. Is that right? Yeah, my opinion is yes. Uh, I think we're trying to put uh, um, behavior uh, of a irresponsible uh, kid um, um, exploring relationships and and uh, sexuality uh, into lump that into child pornography, which uh, I believe at the time the law was passed in Colorado was targeting the type of person who might you know in the uh, analog film uh, era. Um, pose kids, take pictures, gather them together, put them in some kind of publication and sell them for profit. And, and there's certainly, a, I think, a large distinction between the two. The attorney general said, you know, I'm sorry, the district attorney said whether there was some distinction between the two right now or not, he very likely would have used his um, um, um discretion to make the same decision. Um, however, I, I would think if uh, a misdemeanor charge uh, or so, some some uh, um, required uh, um, 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 education or something could have been placed on a child, that, that having those options uh, and not having to prosecute a, a kid for child pornography might have made things a little bit easier for him as far as his decision-making processes. A misdemeanor versus a felony. Let me say that uh, your state senator in that area, Kevin Grantham, held something of a community forum, I think, Friday. And uh, the Canyon City Daily Record reports about 30 people showed up to that. And uh, Grantham said it will be difficult but not impossible to pass new laws that make sexting a misdemeanor instead of a felony. Uh, I know that there's some movement uh, towards this, I think, that was happening even before the, the sexting scandal emerged at Canyon City High School. I wonder, Superintendent, if to a certain extent you're thinking, gosh, how did, how, how did we become the ones that got national attention? This is probably happening everywhere. Well, well, I, I guarantee it's happening everywhere. I, I'm at the end of my, uh, uh, nearing the end of my six-month uh, employment here in Canyon City Schools, but I've been superintendent of schools in Colorado for 18 years prior. And uh, in my last district, uh, never to this uh, uh, scope, but we certainly dealt with individual on individual um, um, issues of uh, uh, sexting where, you know, the, the pattern behavior is uh, uh, 15 and 16-year-old think they're in love, uh, they share these pictures, then turns out they are, aren't and it's not going to be forever and somebody does something stupid like uh, out of anger or out of irresponsibility passes what they received from from you know their boyfriend or girlfriend on to someone else, and that's when a school district typically finds out about it because uh, you know that's starting to affect kids' learning. They're going through the stress of where's it going to end up. Um, they're dealing with uh, um, the embarrassment of it and such. And, and uh, uh, you know, over the past five years, certainly have been dealing with that at some level. Uh, 
I think you could talk to any superintendent of school in Colorado. Have they at least dealt with it once? Sure. Um, why, why did we hit national attention? I, I think certainly uh, ours is a little bit unusual in terms of the size. Uh, there, there was definitely something going on with uh, um, kids trying to collect as many of them as possible. Um, it, it really hit the news, however, because we, we ended up making the decision to cancel our last football game right. of the year because uh, our coaches felt like they couldn't. Uh, field a team that they were sure um, everyone who would be on the field were not involved. Um, and and uh, w- when that happened, we felt like we had to put information out about why we were making that decision. And, and, and you know, it's certainly the, the first attention was on, oh, you're canceling a football game, but I think appropriately the attention turned to the why, you know, oh, what's going on here and is this happening in our community? I want to say that in Chafee County, it was announced last week that authorities are looking into sexting reports at uh, Buena Vista Middle School and High School. What kinds of conversations, just briefly, have you had with other superintendents about what you've learned? I've, I've received calls from four within Colorado since uh, since our story broke, and each time they had questions about what, what's the name of some of these apps that kids are hiding the information in, um, what did you do in terms of parental contact, uh, press release information, uh, that kind of stuff. I, in fact, I was at the Colorado Association of School Boards annual convention in Colorado Springs, uh, uh, not this past weekend, but the weekend before, and I can't tell you how many people ran into who said, you know, as a result of what's happened there, we are, you know, redoubling our efforts to educate our kids. Uh, even met one school board member who's kind of a, you know, small, small town uh, gal who's also uh, sort of a, a bit of a techie. And so she's become the go-to mom in the community to hand your kid's phone over to, to investigate it for some of the hidden apps. <laughs> so uh, the conversation sure got struck up, and I think people are reacting to it in an appropriate way. Very briefly, names of two or three of the apps that they were using? Um, um, yeah, so uh, um, Photo Vault um, was one. I've heard of a, a pretty popular one that we did not uh, uncover, but it's called After School. And After School is uh, an app. It's it's a little bit like Snapchat. The design is, uh, you know, to send something, have it go away when you send it, um, but also then be able to... Um, a password protect it, lock it within your phone so other people can, can't see what's going on. The, the photo vault one is pretty interesting in that, as, as I understand, one of its aspects are that it looks like a calculator, or you can get one I think that looks like a uh, like a sound mixer, uh, you know, an audio program for for adjusting your bass and treble on your phone. Um, and superintendent, um, and can you I... can press a button. Sure. Can I just get a real quick answer? Do you think this is about educating parents, students, or both? Uh, it's it's about both. About both. Uh, parents, uh, number one, I don't think they're aware of a possible legal con- consequences. And uh, number two is I'm not sure they're aware of the, some of the things their kids are able to do on their phones. And then for, for us in schools, we, you know, it's, it's digital citizenship, whether it's uh, uh, what's appropriate to um, possess, pass along, you know, do with your phone. And, and it, it goes to things like uh, um, um, cyberbullying. It goes to uh, um, um, 
the possibility that you might copy something and claim it's yours. George Welsh, superintendent of Canyon City Schools, will be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Ah, humbug. Christmas a humbug. Now, Uncle, you don't mean that, I'm sure. I do mean it. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What right have you to be dismal? Actor Philip Pleasance will speak those famous lines from Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol for the last time this year. He has played the curmudgeonly Ebenezer Scrooge with the Denver Center since 2005 and at other theaters before that for a total of almost 40 years. At 78, Pleasant says he's ready to hang up the top hat. He joined us from the company's rehearsal space. Philip, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. You first played Scrooge in 1978 in Alaska. You were around 40 then, and that strikes me as rather young for the role. What made you feel that you could play Scrooge then? I think uh, probably it's attributable to my uh, wonderful character face (laughs) that allows (laughs) me to go into deep age when I'm really not that old. But that's why I think I landed the part. Grace, the beauty of that is that some people who look older, younger, then don't advance much beyond that point. I can hope that will be true as I go into my declining years. (laughs) How do you get into character for this role? Um, Maybe there are rituals that you engage in. These rituals are so refined in me by now that uh, they are barely done consciously because uh, I know exactly uh, who I'm playing and how I reach my uh, pinnacles and depressions. And uh, so it's not a question of me preparing so much as it is just going on as the character that I have developed fully over many years. It's almost like muscle memory at this point. That's exactly right. You're spot on with that. Uh, Muscle memory is a good term. But that doesn't mean that it's not fresh, because uh, every time I do it, there are always little nuances that, you know, have never happened before. And, uh, you know, that's what makes live theater so thrilling. You say that you find relevance in A Christmas Carol by looking at current news cycles. Um, So do you look at I don't know what's happening in San Bernardino or uh, abroad and draw meaning from that? Well, yes, it's the world we live in. And, uh, you know, the crisis in A Christmas Carol with the terrible uh, deprivation, the crisis in the world today, different though it is, the sentiments are the same and uh, redemption is the same. Redemption is the same. There's something universal and perhaps timeless about that. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, uh, Scrooge gives up his crass monetary leanings and uh, becomes a human being that people want to be around. And that's what we all want, I suppose. You have been praised for your ability not only to play the cranky and bitter aspects of Scrooge, but also to embody his childish joy when he rediscovers the Christmas spirit. Look at me, I'm as light as a feather. (laughs) I'm as merry as a schoolboy. I'm as giddy as a drunken man. How do you approach playing those contrasting parts of the character? 
The childish joy, as you call it, is uh, quite apropos because there are uh, very funny moments when he is being absolutely terrorized by these spirits as well as the dark terror that uh, is the primary mode, but humor comes in very frequently. And how quickly might you have to change between the two? Ah, it's the blink of an eye. (laughs) (laughs) Is that difficult? No, uh, it's not difficult now because, uh, you know, it's in me bones, as they say. There's a part of me that thinks as you play a character year after year, it gets easier. But maybe uh, maybe it can be easy on year two and difficult again at year 11 and then easy again at year 17. I don't know. <laughs> yes, well, the various experiences with the differences of age uh, as I grow older, uh, as I grew older in the part, uh, different uh, nuances came to good fruition would be a word. So uh, the old guy has never betrayed me, and I hope I have never betrayed him. Is there a line in the play that you might point to uh, that it only revealed itself many years into doing this character of Scrooge? Well, now that would require me to think a bit. Uh, let, let me come to that later, if you please. Of course. Your mother, as I understand it, instilled a love of theater in you early on, and she did so by exposing you to Shakespeare's plays. That's true. She loved the bard, and uh, she used to read passages. And finally, when I was old enough to have some sense of what I was saying, uh, we read scenes together, which uh, was quite uh, you know, a revelation to me. And uh, we lived in uh, the a- area of Appalachia, uh, just over the mountain from Charlottesville, Virginia, where in Charlottesville they broadcast the Metropolitan Opera every Saturday with the great productions that they had there. And we had a Philco radio, which she tuned in every Saturday and instilled this great love of music as well as theater. You would read lines together. That, that That's such a lovely picture. Do you remember a particular play that... Um the two of you did? Well, we did uh, uh, Julius Caesar. We did Romeo and Juliet. (laughs) Had lots of fun with that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, a bit of a role change for mother and son, I suppose. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Well, we didn't do the uh, mother uh, and Hamlet scene there, (laughs) which would have complicated my life immensely, I'm sure. I imagine. Um, Is this just goodbye to Scrooge? Uh, or is this goodbye to the stage in general for you? No, it is not. I'm not ending my career. I'm I'm just uh, not doing Scrooge anymore because uh, I've done it for so long and it's meant so much to me. And I don't want to be, uh, you know, stumbling around on the stage <laughs> when I'm 90. <laughs> but uh, I think it's certainly not ended my career. There are many other things that I would love to do and uh, hope to do. Are you a little bored with Scrooge? No. How dare you even suggest such a thing? No. (laughs) No, no, no. Every night, as I said, it's it's quite different. And I love the – you ask for a line. Here's the line that is most heartrending to me when I'm finally converted. I fool Bob Cratchit into thinking I'm still being a cross Scrooge when I've really been converted. And finally I greet him with a big, a Merry Christmas, Bob. A Merrier Christmas, my dear fellow, and I have given you in many a year. That's one of the most touching lines for me uh, in, in the show. And it wraps up the sentiment 
quite beautifully, I think. Thank you so much for talking to us. You're very kind. Thank you very much. Actor Philip Pleasance plays Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol for the last time this holiday season after nearly 40 Christmases in the role. His successor at the Denver Center next year will be actor Sam Gregory, who's well-known to local audiences. Pleasant's final show will be December 27th. You can see photos of him as Scrooge throughout the years at cprnews.org. Coming up, the place Denver shopped for 13 decades. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. For generations, Daniels and Fisher and then May DNF department store was the place to see and be seen in Denver. White-gloved sales clerks, lunches in the DNF tea room, the iconic clock tower on 16th Street. Later, huge Christmas displays in the glass-walled store, which was designed by world-renowned architect I.M. Pei and ice skaters just outside. Mark Barnhouse is the author of the new book, Daniels and Fisher, Denver's Best Place to Shop. Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much, Ryan. So the only remaining piece of the Daniels and Fisher department store is the tower, the clock tower, on the 16th Street Mall. It might strike many as curious that there's this tower with no building around it. There used to be a building around it. What what did the tower represent to shoppers at the time and in general to people in Denver? Because it was a real symbol, wasn't it? It was a real symbol. Uh, the tower, when it was built in 1910 uh, and 11, uh, was the one of the tallest buildings in the United States. It, uh, they said at the time it was the third tallest in the country, although I think it was probably fifth tallest. And, um, you know, it, it, it was a very exciting thing to come downtown and uh, you'd buy a uh, ticket uh, to ride the elevator to the top. And there's up on the 20th floor, even today, uh, a glass walled room that you can see for miles. And uh, that was exciting. And it added some cachet to Denver, which absolutely was even then struggling with its cowtown image. Well, and of course, this was this was simultaneous with all the changes that were taking place um, around Civic Center when Mayor uh, Robert Speer was uh, coming up with his grand plan for Civic Center. And there was this interest in in grand design. So it was kind of a, a response to that, I think. All right. But the experience, uh, not just in the clock tower, but in the department store itself was something unique. I'd like you to read a description of Daniels and Fisher back in 1888. This is actually before that store with the clock tower. Uh, this is the experience of walking in. Certainly. Upon entering, a shopper was greeted with dry goods. A wealth of stuffs piled up were displayed on every hand, aisle after aisle of silks and dress goods and laces and linens and domestics and bedclothing and flannels and cloths and gloves and underwear and handkerchiefs and notions and trimmings and linings and so on. The second floor featured ladies' clothing, imported costumes, exquisite wraps from Paris, beautiful gowns, coats, and jackets from London and Berlin, costly furs, tailor-made suits, and whatever else constitutes elegance in women's apparel. On this floor also were a a children's clothing department, millinery, that's hats for us 21st century people, a department filled with bronzes and marbles, china and porcelain, bric-a-brac and other objets d'art, along with the most charming tea room in Denver and a ladies' balcony furnished with easy chairs and writing desks where women could meet friends or take a break from shopping. You subtitled the, this book, Denver's Best Place to Shop. 
What makes you say that? Because there were other department stores at the time. There were others. Denver Dry Goods, for instance. Well, the Denver Dry Goods, they, that was probably the chief rival to Daniels and Fisher. Uh, there was Joslin's about a block away. There was the Golden Eagle. Um, there was the May Company. Um, and there were several others as well. So it, it really was the prestige store of its time. And an experience to shop there. And that is something that uh, William Cook Daniels, who is the son of the store's founder, uh, really made sure happened. That- he, he did. When, when he took over uh, after his father had passed away and, and his, uh, his father's partner, William Garrett Fisher, had passed away, he uh, remodeled the store and he installed really beautiful uh, mahogany and glass, curving glass uh, display cases all over the store, uh, beautiful rugs in the aisles and... Uh, Really made it a showplace. He was also pretty decent to his employees. He was, actually. Um, in, a, in an era when children were um, – it was a way to, for, for families to make, their, make ends meet, uh, to have children work instead of going to school. Wow. So Daniels was concerned that um, these children were missing out on their education. So he opened up a classroom and he hired a teacher. And uh, children were actually on the clock when they were in these little classes that they would go to every day. Wait, but they employed child labor? They did. Okay. In those, well, of course, nowadays we do everything with credit cards. But in those days, uh, when you purchase something at a store, you'd, uh, you'd hand the money to a, a cash girl or a cash boy. And they were, I don't know, 10 or 12 years old. And they would then ferry the money to a central cashiering office. Uh, along with your purchase where it would be wrapped, and then they'd come back and give you your change and your package. And children were sort of the, the, the shuttles in yeah, they were, process. Yeah, okay. exactly, exactly. So Daniels and Fisher, and this is really still true so much in retail, winds up being you know consolidated, bought up, uh, mm-hmm. put under another name, and later becomes May DNF, May Company, of course, with roots in Colorado as well, Colorado mining towns. And there is another iconic building that that department occupies uh, further up the mall, and that's designed by I.M. Pei, the architect. This building is no longer. Well, part of the building is still there, but the the famous part of it, the hyperbolic paraboloid with its glass walls, um, a a gorgeous structure was was demolished about 20 years ago. The hyperbolic paraboloid, um, that's quite a term, but basically this is like a really mid-mod, cool-angled roof with glass surrounding the the walls. Yes, it was quite a landmark. And uh, what was the experience like at that department store? And that's really taking off right when the suburbs are booming and downtown isn't the hotspot anymore. It was a real risk, I think, for the May Company, which at that point uh, had purchased Daniels and Fisher, to move into this giant, uh, about 400,000 square foot building, I think it was, um, at a time when there were already suburban branches appearing yeah. of other of their competitors. And... The windows, you have photos of this in the book. Uh, mm-hmm. Because it was really all glass, the window displays, especially at the holidays, were mm-hmm. stunning. Oh, yeah. They uh, used to have uh, animated displays uh, that told little stories and, and were designed to get people to come downtown with their kids. Now, uh, May DNF closes uh, that location um, really over some, like, there's controversy around their business practices in Denver and whether they're being honest in their ads. Well, there was that. That I don't think that led directly to the closure of the downtown store, but certainly they did go through a period in the uh, late 80s where the Attorney General of Colorado, Dwayne Woodard, was going after them for practices that he considered 
uh, deceptive. Essentially, they said things were on sale all the time. Well, they did. And they probably w- were not really on sale. No, they they would they would come in with a uh, marked price and they would uh, put them on sale immediately, but they would never be. Uh, they would always be at that price. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the word sale started to lose its meaning, and the attorney general took note at the time. He did. Is there a store today anywhere in the world that you think gives us some sense of what it would have been like to walk into any of the original Daniels and Fishers? You know, I think there are. Uh, there's still, of course, the wonderful Macy's in, in New York. There's some wonderful uh, Japanese department stores that have, have sort of that experience when you go into them. Of course, Harrods in London, things like that. So they're not all gone. They're not all gone. They just, uh, Denver doesn't support that anymore. We, we buy our goods in other ways now. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Mark Barnhouse, author of Daniels and Fisher, Denver's best place to shop. We wonder if you have memories of shopping at May DNF. Comment at the bottom of our article where you can also see old photos of both Daniels and Fisher and May DNF, cprnews.org. We'll be right back with Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Negotiators reached a climate deal in Paris, but it's only the first step. Now they must sell the plan to the people. For the U.S. Department of Agriculture, that might mean convincing farmers and ranchers to make changes. As CPR's environment reporter Grace Hood explains, the agency has already started. Rancher Laura Negley has intimate knowledge of just how bad drought can be. 2013 and 14 was so dry, we didn't have cattle. Negley lives in dry southeastern Colorado. We didn't have wheat crop and we didn't have a milo crop. So basically our income on our operation was nil. Negley was at a recent cattle symposium event in northern Colorado looking for answers. She embodies one of the challenges policymakers dealing with climate change face. Despite scientific consensus, Negley isn't convinced that the phenomenon exists. There's a lot of different science opinions about what's happening with climate change. How much of it is due to mankind activity? Not everyone at the symposium feels that way, though. Take retired rancher Rory Cross. Of course, you know, the president now says it's, we got global warming and we've got to do something about it. So I'm open-minded about it. He may be open-minded, but even for those who do accept mankind's role in climate change, shifting behavior is hard. That's why the USDA is trying to help both the farmers and the food supply. We have a duty, right, a responsibility to help feed the world. Justin Derner heads up the USDA's Northern Plains Climate Hub, which covers Colorado, Wyoming, and four other states. It's one of seven hubs the USDA launched in 2014. To do that, it's going to take us working together collectively, employing the best available science, employing the best available experiential knowledge from the field, and technology. Derner is at the Northern Colorado ranching event to reach out to producers. He says he rarely opens a discussion with the mention of climate change. We often start the conversation with what's happened in a recent year or two, maybe the last four or five years, and that conversation will then start to kind of unfold upon itself. Like farmers, Derner knows his weather, both now and 100 years from now, when he says it could be hotter and drier. Still, he says he keeps his conversations narrow when he's talking to farmers. They're not interested hardly at all in what 2100 looks like. Again, their decision-making is 
this annual production cycle the next few years. Derner gives advice, but he also takes advice. He says he wants to learn from ranchers and farmers what kind of agricultural research they think the USDA should be looking into. Iowa State sociologist Jay Arbuckle says how Derner talks to farmers is critical. You could alienate a good you know, 60% of your audience if you start talking about uh, anthropogenic climate, climate change. Arbuckle polled farmers across the Corn Belt on their climate change beliefs in 2012 to inform outreach for the USDA's Midwest Climate Hub. He says while the majority believed the climate was changing, just 40 percent thought that human activity played a role. It's know your audience, and once you know your audience, then you can develop uh, programming and outreach and communications materials to, to, to work with them. There can be large shifts in climate opinions depending on things like where someone lives or their party affiliation. According to the Yale Project on Climate Change Communication, there are actually six distinct beliefs ranging from alarmed all the way down to dismissive. Anthony Leiserwitz heads up the Yale Project, but he says there are some messages that seem to work pretty well across all six groups. For example, the issues of health. Who doesn't want less polluted air or cleaner water? But if you want to bring up polar bears, you better be careful. It works really well with, with say, the alarmed and concerned because they tend to have great concerns about the environment more generally. And the doubtful and dismissive get kind of angry about the whole polar bear message because, you know, like, what's a polar bear ever done for me? Like our buckle, Liza Woods says, know your audience. The USDA's Justin Derner would probably agree. And he says that's what he does. The strategy of his work is dictated by the unique nature of each agricultural producer. For us, it's largely how can we assist those producers in their near-term decision-making related to information, type of tools, practices, that ensures that they're still in operation few years down the road. And it's not all doom and gloom. Take the northern plains. It could actually increase production as the climate warms. Derner says a big part of that could depend on what kinds of choices farmers make. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. This year's Colorado Book Award for Poetry went to the late Jake Adam York of Denver. He died in 2012 of a stroke. York often wrote about the South where he grew up, including the forgotten victims of racial violence. I wanted to recover their names, but I also wanted to recover their lives to the extent that that's possible. York knew he appeared to be an unlikely chronicler. I'm as white as a bag of flour. But it's American history, and it was made with at least two races and with at least two communities. And so he dug into the past. York submitted the manuscript for his poetry collection, Abide, just days before his death. His colleagues at the University of Colorado, uh, Denver, Brian Barker and Nikki Beer, helped get it published. We spoke to them earlier this year. So Jake Adam York died when he was just 40. Obviously, he didn't plan on having this be his last book of poems. I, I think that's right. Is that a safe assumption? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, he saw a, a life's work ahead of him. How does this collection fit into the work he did do? Well, it extends his interest in elegizing the civil rights martyrs. His three previous books had many poems that thought about people like Medgar Evers, but other people that you, you might not have heard of. So this book is an extension of that. And he saw this larger project under a title of Inscription for Air, which he said was a book without a spine, that all the poems came together under this one title. Inscriptions for Air. What do you mean? 
Jake talked about how if our, our memories of the civil rights movements and of the violence of that time only resides at the monuments that are around the country, then they don't really necessarily have a life and that they need to exist in the air between us, in, in the words that we speak. That is honoring people everywhere, not just in specific spots. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, Nikki, Jake asked you to review the manuscript a few months before he died. What are your thoughts about the book? What were your initial impressions? My initial impressions were that this book was a wonderful continuation of his project to elegize the civil rights martyrs, but that it was also an evolution forward in his work because he was integrating more personal elements into the poems, engaging more with his own uh, personal history, with his family history, uh, with his relationships. So seeing those two elements playing with one another and also engaging with his own deep love of music, his admiration of other artists in various creative fields, seeing all of those elements at play in this book, I felt that it was you know, an extraordinary achievement and basically an extraordinary step forward in what was already a magnificent body of work. Let's hear one of the poems about a really difficult subject. 16-year-old John Earl Reese was shot by Klansmen as he danced in a cafe in Mayflower, Texas in 1955. Jake wrote several poems about Reese including one called Mayflower. Uh, York visited the ruins of the cafe and describes the sense of silence he felt there as he imagined what happened. Here's a recording of him reading Mayflower at the University of Houston's American Book Review. Before the bird's song, you hear its quiet, which becomes part of the song and lives on after. Struck notes, bright and silence. As the room's damp, Wallpaper and wall, muffling the high cicadas whine, mumbling talk from another room, hangs like the thought of a roof in the midst of rain, long after the joists have been brought down. So, the quiet, syllables crowded, full throats once the talkers have gone away, and a young man's voice becomes a young man's silence, all he did not say which nothing keeps saying in the empty room between the pines that hold the quiet of the song he cannot sing, the sound of a room without sound in the middle of what anyone can hear. The late Denver poet Jake Adam York reading Mayflower. Uh, The poem is set in Texas. He was actually from Alabama. How did he immerse himself in a time and place? Jake did a tremendous amount of research for his poetry. Um, He had an idea of the type of poem that he was trying to write as being a documentary lyric. He spent a lot of time scrolling through microfiche, looking at newspaper articles from the towns where these murders took place. He also looked at court documents and FBI reports. And he tried to find a way into the material that was new, um, that gave him a sense of the place and, and of the people And one of the things he he talked about was the way that the newspaper articles were particularly important because the language that was used rarely masked the prejudices of the community. So that was insightful for him and kind of closing the gap of time and place. I have never given thought to whether poets do research, uh, which is naive of me. But is it unusual? It's very common. I think it is a writing habit that's often more ascribed to 
prose writers. But in fact, there are a lot of poets who engage very deeply in research and that Jake's use of history or the way he engaged with history in his work was a part of his perception of seeing poetry as a way of addressing history outside of official history. And there are a lot of poets who take a similar approach, poets like Camille Dungy and Natasha Trethewey and Linda Beards, who see poetry as a place to uh, investigate historical positions or historical voices that may not have been represented accurately or at all in official histories. But he did also, Jake Adam York, visit some of these places. It was not just research from afar. Is that right? Yes. Part of his method was to go to the place and to visit it. And I think this was important for him because, you know, he he felt the word that he used a lot was the, the erasure of a human being. And for many of these these deaths, there are no monuments. There's not even a plaque. And so he would have to ask around and get people to take him to the places where these lynchings or murders were um, took place. And so, he, he would sometimes bring his wife to these places. I mean, this was sort of what it was to vacation with a poet uh, of this ilk. To be married to a poet, you're signing on for a whole, a whole range of excursions and adventures and investigations that maybe <laughs> aren't necessarily commonplace. I wonder why he so often referred to other artists and art in, in his poems. Jake was a huge music fan, specifically jazz and the blues. And so there's a lot of figures that come up in this book, like Sun Ra, Howlin' Wolf, Thelonious Monk comes up, John Coltrane. So partially this is about his obsession and love of music. But in a larger sense, I think that he saw music specifically, as he speaks about in a note at the end of the book, as a space for us to engage race or to think about the history in a, in a different way. It's a space for the self and the other, for white and black to come together. Nikki, what poem in this book speaks to you? I would say Exploded View, which is a poem about Jake's father, who was a steel worker. And I think it's an absolutely beautiful meditation on you know relationships between parent and child, storytelling, um, making, and it has a gorgeous musicality to its language. And I remember reading it the first time when Jake gave me the manuscript and just feeling so, so deeply moved. I had to put the whole thing down and just kind of take some breaths before I could keep reading. Would you read it for us? Absolutely. Okay, great. It might be helpful to know that an exploded view is a diagram of a mechanism that shows its individual parts separately, indicating their relative positions. So it's like a small mechanism has had a little explosion so that the parts separate enough so you can see where they are and what they are. Almost like the diagram of a watch and all of its components or something. If they're all separated out slightly. The exploded view of things. Exploded view. While he slept, I read my father's books brought home from the furnace, traced the diagrams, channels, ladles of iron, oxygen lances, trying to follow the metal's path, to follow the work that took him each night into the dark, flame to the coal's dark, the dark gone bright while the rest of us slept. The door closed like a storybook. While he worked, the furnace flamed in dream, and I tried to follow through the swarm of yellow jackets, hot wings of iron, but they were just outlines in my dream. Dream, not iron, not fire in the dark. Just spray from one rare story I tried to follow. 
I tried to follow, but even he didn't want to go, not even in story, the blanks in the book's diagrams, all ash, all flame. All silence, they seem to say. But silence is a furnace, too, where work disappears, where breath is turned to iron. And night is a furnace, too, where sleep, where dark, are burned away like words until the books are blank and there's nothing left to follow. I tried, listening as he eased the stairs, clicked the door, then drove away, his engine lost in the train's low drone, strained to hear him turning ten miles away, pages in the book of iron, the story he told by not telling, the dark in which the furnace always rests. So the furnace is a father, too, whose story you cannot follow, a shadow sitting loud in the dark while the quiet hardens in his lungs. And the father is a story, too, you cannot follow, a book fed slowly to the fire, a fire worked at last to two black tongues of iron. And uh, so, Brian, what, what are your thoughts about that poem? Um, I think it's a lovely poem. I love the way that it uses repetition and the way that the the idea of the image of the fire changes and the idea of the image of the story and the way that that last image of the two tongues forged from iron, that there's a sense there that there's not a lot of words. If you're a tongue made of iron, um, you might not speak that easily. There might yeah. not be words, but there's they're built to last, that they're going to stand the test of time. So I think it's a it's a lovely comment on a relationship that way. Nikki, in the introduction, we heard a Jake Adam York in a recording say that writing about civil rights in particular from the vantage point of a white guy could be, oh, I don't, I don't know, thorny perhaps sometimes or, or people might not have reacted well to that. Um, will you talk just a little bit about that? Well, one of the things that really I found that Jake addressed really well was this idea that this isn't simply African-American history that he's addressing, but that it's American history, that as Americans, it is it is a history we all have to address. We all are related to or complicit with in some way. Was and he that, accused of co-opting, though? This notion of being seen as co-opting was something that was always present in mm. his mind. It's a question he got asked a lot. And, I, and what I would say to that is Jake was – he was not cavalier about taking on the subject matter. It's something that he reflected on all the time very deeply. And it's also something that he had many dialogues with, I think, with other writers and thinkers. It was a part of the process for him to kind of interrogate himself about the subject matter that he was taking on as a, as a white white male. Conversations with artists, poets of, of – other races, I suppose. Yes. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yes. You're yes. getting a diversity of opinion there. Gosh, it makes me think that uh, it's a pity that he couldn't be here now giving voice to so much of the racial unrest we're seeing. The Fergusons and the Staten Islands and, you know, frankly, the the debate over the Confederate flag, for that matter. It's something that's crossed my mind as well when horrifying and tragically we see news stories popping up with an almost nauseating consistency. It, I always think, what would Jake say about this? Or I want to hear what Jake would say about this because maybe he might help me make sense of it or try to think about a way to engage with it in a way where I'm not simply resorting to despair. Well, I think, I think definitely his, his work 
is important for the times that we're living in. And I think that's an argument that he, he made is that the past is not the past, as, as Faulkner says. And so I think that for that reason, his, his work is very important to us and as, as we try to move forward and try to make progress. Thanks to both of you for being with us and uh, sorry for your loss. Thank you. you very much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Poets Brian Barker and Nicole Beer of CU Denver, remembering the late Jake Adam York, who died in 2012. The two of them spoke with me last summer. York's collection Abide won this year's Colorado Book Award for Poetry. That's Colorado Matters for today, with special thanks to Kareem Maddox, Nathan Heffel, and Michael Hughes. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with Colorado Public Radio.